Welcome to In Your Area. On today's episode, we hear from Bill McDougall, broker owner of Optimum Realty Group and frequent pod contributor, as he chats with Michael Litchfield of Think Lab Legal Education and Training. Michael is a BC lawyer, educator, and management consultant, and is the managing director of Think Lab Legal Education and Training. The duo chat about cannabis as it pertains to real estate in Alberta, exploring the rights of both renters and owners, how contractual obligations were impacted with the legalization of cannabis, and the implications of growing plants on a property. They break down latent and patent defects, as well as discuss stigma as it pertains to cannabis and real estate. We hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to the Area Podcast, and today's episode is going to be cannabis and real estate. It's a great uh, topic and has a lot of uh, ins and outs in it. And with us today, uh, we have a, a specialist, I would say, out of uh, out of Victoria, Michael, who is going to give us an insight into cannabis and real estate. It has changed dramatically since uh, since cannabis, cannabis has been legalized, but there are still a lot of pitfalls that we need to uh, to look at. So, Michael, would you introduce yourself and uh, let's go for, forward with that. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Bill, and, and thank you very much for having me. So, as uh, as you mentioned, I, I I don't know if I call myself a specialist, but I have a definite area of expertise in the area of uh, of cannabis and specifically cannabis regulation. Uh, so, I'm a corporate lawyer by background uh, and currently work as an educator and management consultant. I have two sort of main companies: one called Think Lab, and the other called the Cannabis Education Corporation. I also have a foot in the academic world, and I'm the director of the Business Law Clinic at the University of Victoria. Uh, here where I live on the island in British Columbia, and I also am uh, currently uh, pursuing a PhD in uh, the topic of cannabis regulation. So that's uh, that's a bit about uh, my background. I've also worked with most of the major real estate-related associations in BC, and the BC Real Estate Association, and uh, BC Nonprofit Housing Association, and others. So I'm very happy to be here today. Well, I great. Thanks very much, Michael. Um, just a bit of background on myself. I'm a broker in uh, the Calgary area. I also teach the Certified Condominium Specialist course uh, at the Calgary Real Estate Board. And uh, cannabis is one of the major topics of, uh, of those uh, instructions and how we deal with cannabis and specifically renters and smoking and all of that. So where do you want to start on this, Michael? Where's the biggest issue that we, we think we're running into cannabis? I can give you my ideas where I think the, the biggest issue is, and that could be uh, a conventional condominium 20 stories up and somebody smoking pot on the... Uh, on the balcony and everybody's yelling and screaming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the issue of drifting smoke in, in multi-unit multi residential buildings, that's one of the big ones and, and it's a good enough place as any to start, I guess. Um, so that that's a very common uh, complaint uh, that that I hear and that I have to work with. So the situation being where uh, you know we had we now have legalized cannabis, and uh, so individuals may decide to to partake, and they may decide to to use the method of smoking to do so. And if they're doing so in a in a multi unit residential building, that smoke may drift into uh, other neighboring units, causing complaints. And there is some. A misunderstanding there, I think, uh, amongst some tenants that feel like, well, this is legal, so I can essentially do what I want when I want. And the big legal issue that we're running into there is the topic of quiet uh, enjoyment. And that's probably something that most of your uh, listeners are, are aware of. But in a residential tenancy perspective, all tenants have the right to quiet enjoyment. Uh, 
And so, you know, for instance, as to use an, a, an analogous example, you know, smoking salmon or barbecuing is perfectly legal. But if you smoke salmon on your deck or barbecue uh, for hours on end every day and that smoke drifts into your neighbor's houses, they legitimately have a legal basis to complain about that. Uh, and that's known as a breach of quiet enjoyment. Okay. Yeah, that's good. And one thing I noticed, um, the other concern we're having and that I've, I've heard from uh, different realtors is that uh, when you have a renter in that, uh, say, condominium or, or property, and they are told they're not allowed to, as, as per their lease, smoke in the house, hmm. but they smoke out on the balcony. But then they say, oh, I, can, I need this for mer- uh, medical uh, purposes. And so that, uh, that, that lease that I've got doesn't pertain to me smoking because I have to have it. And the courts and everybody else says I can. So now investors are going, do I really want to rent out property anymore? Because they could be smoking themselves crazy in the par- apartment. Right. So that's another one of these major issues that's uh, that we're dealing with these days. And that's the issue of medical cannabis and how that interacts with the different rights and obligations of landlords and the rights and obligations of, of tenants. And so in, in the case of, of medical cannabis, again, there's a misunderstanding there uh, that, that medical users of cannabis can essentially do whatever they want. And, and that is not the case. So let's just run down maybe how a property manager might deal with this situation. Um, so the first thing that a property manager has to uh, ascertain if, if, they, if they have a uh, complaint of drifting smoke and it's uh, damaging the quiet enjoyment of other uh, tenants, they need to investigate that. And if your tenant is telling you that they are smoking or using cannabis for a medical purpose, then uh, that requires some further investigation. So let's just break that down a little bit. Unfortunately, there's numerous individuals who who are self-medicating with cannabis, and that's not enough to to actually allow them to to breach their other rights and obligations as tenants. So the first thing is to to seek proof. So if your tenant says they're using for medical purpose, then then a a good property manager will seek proof of, of that. And the tenant has to provide that. It's not a privacy issue because what they're essentially doing is asking for you to accommodate a disability. And accommodation is a two-way street. It requires the involvement of the tenant. So if a tenant says, I'm smoking for medical purpose, it is legitimate for a property manager to be able to ask for some details on that so that they can properly seek an accommodation there. Um, Again, it's really important to note that um, there needs to be some level of proof. And usually that's a note from a medical practitioner. Uh, once once that happens, then there actually is a shifting of a burden uh, and, and the landlord does have to look at accommodation once the, the medical uh, need has been proven. But again, another misunderstanding is accommodation doesn't mean that the tenant gets to do whatever they want. Accommodation is a, a complex process wherein the, the landlord seeks to accommodate the disability, um, but the tenant is not uh, entitled to a perfect accommodation. Okay, so and the other, you know, so when we're talking about tenants, uh, we can say that okay, you don't if you you don't really need to smoke. Maybe there's some other form of method of taking your medicine that doesn't involve smoking. For me, smoking um, to get medicine just doesn't make sense in the first place. It just like how is that fixing anything? But that's, right. that's my well, opinion. I mean, there, there, there. That's a whole other discussion we could have. But <laughs> on, on the side of alternative use of, uh, of 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 other products, that's that could be part of the accommodation. So, uh, ch- seeing if if they in fact do need to smoke the product for for their medical use, maybe there is another way they can get it through through edibles or through an, another method, uh, oils or tinctures that 
that uh, that that may uh, allow that individual to to treat their disability. Um, the other areas of accommodation may be physical alteration to the properties, installing ventilation, or things like that. Um, it's really important, though, to understand that last point that I made, that the, the, the tenant is not obligated to a perfect accommodation. It's a two-way street, and there is a limit, and that limit is called undue hardship. So if, if the accommodation were to present an undue hardship to a landlord, then that's the limit to which they would have to go. And undue hardship changes with the circumstances of each landlord. So, for instance, a large commercial landlord with multiple buildings would have a different threshold for uh, undue uh, hardship than a single landlord renting out their basement. Exactly. And this, and we've been talking about condos, but this really pertains to any kind of housing at all in real estate that uh, tenants involved in. Um, now, the other part is portion of it is um, what can they grow in the uh, in the rental or the unit, whether it's a house or, or apartment. And again, the new federal laws state so much. But my problem and problem with other realtors is they say you can have four plants or whatever it is, but they don't stipulate truly how big those plants can get. And, and that's, I think, a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting issue because, because in fact, actually, when the legislation was moving through the the the, um, the Senate, there were was actually an amendment proposed to limit the height of of the kind of plants that you can grow, but that was that was abandoned. So uh, our current laws, as you've noted, don't actually have any restrictions other than uh, in Alberta, it's four four plants can be grown legally, so uh, that is the legal um, uh, allowance. But again, it's really important to understand this is not a um, an unfettered license to do whatever you want. Landlords can restrict the growing or the smoking of uh, cannabis in their units, and they can do that through their residential tenancy agreements. So when you are drafting your residential tenancy agreements, uh, it's a very good idea to turn your mind to this issue. Yeah, and it's, it's the same kind of restrictions that you can put on there if you have a, like a, you can't have a fish tank or because it puts too much moisture in the air. Or you can't grow 17 plants, not marijuana, but any kind of plants in there because it's not good for the, for the rental unit itself too. So yeah, there are restrictions that they can put in. Yeah, absolutely. The landlord uh, can can put in various types of restrictions uh, into the residential tenancy agreement. And it's very clear that restricting smoking or growing are, are types of uh, restrictions that can be placed in those red, uh, tenancy agreements. Again, if a medical situation arises, the, the property manager or landlord will have to deal with that on a case by case basis. Um, but those kind of restrictions can absolutely be put into those agreements. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that when you're talking about plants and growing plants now, um, that is not when you've got four plants in there, that's not considered a grow up, I guess, as the old term used to be. Uh, one plant in the house used to be a grow up or a number of plants or one plant, but that's not considered a grow up anymore. So we do not need to disclose that in, in real estate. Is, is that correct? Yeah, so I mean that that brings us over into the other really interesting area uh, here, which is looking at residential sales and and then looking at disclosure requirements. Because you know I would say that's probably the the number one issue on the minds of realtors that are working in uh, in BC. We call it trading services or in Alberta residential uh, residential services. Is is our is our 
you know, variety of disclosure requirements that we have to make here. So it, it might be useful to kind of walk through it in a uh, organized uh, fashion. The first uh, thing that we want to be aware of is just the basic rule I'm sure we all are aware of is around patent defects. Uh, and of course, patent defects are a defect that's discoverable through reasonable inspection. Uh, in, in most provinces in Canada, we have a caveat emptor or buyer beware that applies to real estate. So patent defects uh, don't have to be disclosed. Um, but when we move into the area of latent defects and stigma, that's when we start to get into the tricky area with, uh, with cannabis. Uh, so latent defects, again, uh, is, a, is a defect that is discoverable by reasonable inspection or reasonable inquiry. Uh, there's a long legal history around latent defects, and I'm sure all realtors know that they have a positive obligation to disclose material latent defects uh, under the Real Estate uh, Act rules. That's where we start to uh, to get into considerations around uh, cannabis growing. So to, to respond to, to your point, Bill, uh, I think it was back in 2013, the Real Estate Council of Alberta put out a, um, a bulletin deeming any marijuana grow ops to be ma material latent defects. Uh, and they defined in that bulletin a, a, a material or sorry, a, a marijuana grow up as a property that's been leased or bought by persons in the illegal drug trade. And so that's why the growing of four plants legally would not actually constitute a grow up under that definition of that bulletin. So four legal plants in and of themselves, having been grown in a property, do not trigger a, um, a disclosure obligation. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't cause latent defects, though. Yes, Exactly. So, and that's the biggest thing is, is, is what, what they're actually doing. If it's four legal plants and each one of these plants is eight foot high and four feet wide and they're putting a lot of water into the building, it may be legal, but they may be destroying the building. And this is true. And so that's where we start to get in this tricky area um, for, for realtors where the growing of the plants themselves doesn't necessarily constitute this material latent defect. But we have to be aware that the growing in, in, in non-ideal conditions can very much cause material latent defects. So, I mean, the example we all know about is the, and you mentioned, is the moisture levels. Uh, if we don't control those properly within a, a, grow, um, a grow situation with proper fans and humidity detectors, uh, then you very can quickly can develop a mold problem, which then becomes a material latent defect. If you know, you're aware you've grown these plants, it's caused mold, then that would trigger your obligation to disclose Okay. And then, you know, on, in disclosing, we're going back to, to older grow ops. And I think this is where the, the real confusion for, for realtors comes is there was a, a house that had a grow op in it. It was identified by, uh, by Alberta Health Services and the local uh, policing authorities. Uh, and then they had the house remediated. Uh, Alberta Health Services came back in and have now given that approval and they've taken their notice off title. So you can see it on a historical title, but not on the current title. And is that still a grow up? Is it still a stigmatized house? Uh, I know to the banks, it's not their favorite place to lend. 
But can you comment on that one, Michael? I, I can comment, but I have to give you the classic uh, lawyer answer of it depends. Uh, this is probably <laughs> the most complex question that can be asked here, which is uh, this combination of the fact that you have had an illegal grow up that would have been defined by that bulletin uh, as an illegal grow up. Um, but then you have remediation and that that presents a difficult issue because as we all would know, if we had a, a roof, for instance, that was leaking, um, we would and we knew about it, we would have to disclose that. But what if we fix the roof? Well, we wouldn't have to disclose that because it's it's repaired, it's remediated. Now, this becomes much more complicated with cannabis because of the complexities of the kinds of damage it can do. And so, um, you know, the, the, the depends answer and the answer I'll have to say is that any realtor who's dealing with a property that was formerly on the, uh, on, on the list, was identified as a grow up and has been remediated, needs to take... Uh, caution uh, in the file, an extra level of risk management, an extra level of communication if you if you need guidance from a managing broker or, or another uh, a resource. Um, these are the kind of files that really do need that, that moment of taking a step back and saying, okay, there's a, there's a complex legal situation here and I should receive some advice on that. Yeah, because it's not just in, in the, you know, I, I advise some of realtors that, you know, if you've got that issue um, you know, the first steps is is maybe after the remediation, get a home inspector in there, a mold inspector in there to make sure you've got a mold report before you put it online. But the other issue I, I tend to tell realtors is get a hold of your mortgage broker that you deal with all the time, all the time and find out if it's not only stigmatized, but has been flagged by the banks. Mm-hmm. that It has been a marijuana grow up and it can't be lent upon. Um, and that's going to inhibit your, your marketability of that property immensely. You know, so disclosure on that, I mean, you know, how do you, how does a realtor disclose? I mean, it's been remediated. Do, you don't legally need to disclose. Um, morally, do we need to do it or how, how we handle that? Well, and that's why I say that's a that's a very difficult situation. I'll give you my perspective on it, but I recognize that it's not shared by everybody. I've had these kinds of in depth conversations with uh, realtors around uh, around this province uh, for for a few years, uh, and, and and the position is really that um, it's it's a dangerous uh, area. So you could go ahead on the assumption that it is fully remediated. You've been told it's fully remediated, and and you could decide at that point that you'd met all your professional obligations and move forward. But you are still taking a risk that down the road, um, if the buyer discovers a mold problem or something that has uh, has a popped up, and maybe it could it couldn't have been um, noticed in the home inspection. Maybe you know mold lies dormant during certain seasons and certain conditions, and now it's now it's bloomed. Um, there is a non-zero risk there for that uh, real estate professional that they could be embroiled in some kind of uh, legal dispute. So my position on it, and again, this is going to depend on your client and, and receiving proper um, you know, permissions and discussion with your client, my permission is that, um, and this is, goes for most stigmatized properties, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, you should disclose. Uh, it's the safest route forward. Um, that that's my perspective, and I, I completely understand that's one that's not shared by all, all real estate professionals. But from a legal professional, I sort of think a uh, you know an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of cure. At the end, it prevents you from getting into that lawsuit. It prevents you from you know being dragged your name being dragged through the mud. Um, uh, of course, this depends on on your client allowing you to disclose these kinds of things. But I, I think a real conversation has to be had uh, at that time, and and a sit down possibly with some um, some professional advice if you need it. 
Yeah, and, and as a broker, I would say to my clients or my realtors and saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but if somebody brings a lawsuit against you and your client because of this, um, you're going to have to employ a lawyer for four or 500 bucks an hour to protect your position, even though your position, you know, may have been is correct and accurate, uh, you still may have to go through the process. It's going to cause pro- consternation, time, and and possibly money. So, yeah, I agree that dis- disclosure is a really important thing. And then stigmatized properties, one of my favorite subjects. Yes. So, uh, so we've talked about our two different areas of of uh, defect. There, our patent defect and our latent defect. Just to make this more complex, we have a third consideration known as a stigma. And so while while the defects are objective considerations, uh, stigma is a subjective consideration. And what that all that really means is it depends on the subjective mindset of the buyer. Um, And so the common stigmas we we see are things like cannabis grow ups or a murder in the property or a suicide in the property or uh, some there's some funny case law out of the U.S. about haunted houses um, in terms of stigma. Um, So so that's that's the kinds of um, things that we see. But we should note before we talk about cannabis, that stigma could be anything. Uh, you know, a client could say to their agent, look, I don't want to buy a house um, where they ever grew tomatoes in the house. I mean, I hate tomatoes. And so, you know, if if the client says that, then it becomes the realtor's obligation to uh, to uh, ensure that no tomatoes were ever grown because that's uh, that's the instructions from your client. So in regards to stigma, if a buyer identifies that they're concerned about the growing of cannabis and its its potential impacts on a property, um, then the buyer's agent really needs to uh, canvas this issue uh, with the seller's agent and really do uh, significant due diligence to make sure that that there's uh, that there's no issue there. The other kind of interesting twist that can come here, and this is a challenge, uh, is that if you're uh, imagine a situation where your seller client says, "Yes, I've grown my four legal plants, and there's nothing wrong with that, and there's no defects, and I do not want you to disclose that." Uh, this is a, one of those interesting situations. And then you have a buyer who says, I'm, I'm really concerned about cannabis being grown. And, and Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. Buyer's agent, I really want you to ask that question. Um, it's, I'm not sure if you've ever run into one of those situations, but that's one of those situations where fiduciary duties clash and, and it can be quite challenging. So when, when that happens, usually, I, you know, as a buyer's agent, you would be talking to the seller's uh, representative and uh, say, my clients are very concerned about cannabis in the house and they want to know as to your seller's best of their knowledge that cannabis has never been grown in there. And on the seller's side, they're telling the realtor, do not disclose that we just had four plants. We just took them out. So the selling realtor just basically looks at the other realtor and smiles and says, I can't disclose that. Which on the buying side means, oh, yeah, they've been in there. And so you probably wipe that off. And so I think uh, both the the seller's agent has to talk to their their, uh, their clients and say, look, I won't disclose. And if they ask me the question, I'm going to say I can't disclose that, which means, yes, there were. So how do you want me to handle this? Well, and, and that's the exact that is the exact answer, um, and that is you know that is exactly my advice. As as uh, as not ideal as it is, and I fully recognize that uh, the seller's agent is put in a very difficult position there, and they cannot breach confidentiality of their client. And really, you know, as you said, they have to be very cagey with that that answer. Um, and so, but that is one of those situations that does arise with stigma. I guess 
you know, the, the, the big takeaway with stigma is just to recognize what it is, that it's subjective. Uh, if you're on the buyer side, make sure that you, uh, you canvas this area. And, and if, if it is an issue, you do uh, lots of due diligence. And on the seller side, just be aware that, uh, you know, you cannot uh, breach a, a confidentiality of your client unless they allow you to uh, reveal that information. But it does put you in a very difficult situation. Does another point with stigma? I was going to ask a question on, and it's it's to do mostly with illegal grow ups, and and maybe a house has been illegal grow up. Uh, they've uh, remediated the property and and they've done all the proper ones. Alberta Health Services checked it out, and they may even, may even had a, a mold inspector to confirm it. But the stigma portion of it is um, the buyer is thinking, okay, that was a, in the drug trade. Um, are there going to be criminals driving by this place, targeting it, shooting at it? Uh, is that a stigma to that property? Is it affecting it? And is it something that can that can be held up in court, or uh, is it something that can be um, that can kill a deal? I know stigma is tough yeah. to kill a deal with, but yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so the the issue with uh, with stigma, and just to, to be clear, as you mentioned, is it it's not just about uh, a defect. So it's not just about damage to the property. The stigma is about, it could be about anything. So um, in, in the case where it's been used as an illegal grow up, you know, the, the buyer may be concerned with the damage to the property, but the stigma may have to relate to, uh, to criminal behavior. And so, the, and that's very valid. Um, and there's a, a very uh, recent case out of, uh, out of uh, British Columbia, uh, where somebody was murdered on a property uh, and it, from a criminal element. And, and this stigma was, uh, was part of the uh, consideration, which is, is very valid there. Um, now, you know, the, 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 uh, bottom line is that when a stigma is identified, uh, then uh, they have to then th- the seller's agent has to be responsive uh, uh, to, to that. So if uh, if the if a buyer identifies that there's a stigma and the buyer's agent is asking questions about that stigma, um, then it is a subjective consideration in the buyer's mind. It's a relevant consideration and uh, and it should be explored uh, fully. Uh, if there is any misinformation about the stigma, so for instance, if the buyer's agent asks, you know, is there, uh, was there a suicide or was there a criminal element here? And there uh, are, uh, you know, mistruths or untruths told, then that could land up in uh, in court. Yeah, one one piece of advice I've been giving out to to realtors too. I had a, a property that was um, uh, where they there was a suicide in the house and it was a nonviolent suicide. And I had a long conversation with the um, with the brother who who now owns it, um, and I said, "This is how we're going to handle this. I mean, I'm going to have to somehow disclose this. It it doesn't need to be. Uh, it's a stigmatized property. You really don't have to. But I don't want the people coming back in court and taking you to court. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put in the 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 agent comments, the private comments, saying." Um, there is an issue with the property. Please call me before you book any showings and I'll explain the situation. And I said, is that okay? Uh, And what exactly can I say to them where I don't um, impinge upon your privacy or anything like that? And we worked out a little spiel that I would say um, of those people that showed it, like when 50% of the people that called me, or I should say when all the people called me, only 50% showed it, 
but it did sell and they were quite comfortable with the situation. So that's maybe something you could do on either that way or, or cannabis or something like that. Absolutely. And I mean, it, it underlies the basic point of, of what we were talking about within within cannabis and the, the four legal plants and, and the fact that legally you don't have to disclose that as long as it hasn't caused a defect. But again, as a lawyer who's worked in this area, I, you know, I'm very, uh, my advice to real estate professionals, you don't want to end up in court. You don't want to end up in that fight. And so, you know, sunshine can clean, can clear the air. Um, if you are, are open and disclose these things at the outset, you will limit, of course, your, your potential buyers, but you will also drastically reduce the chances that you're going to end up in court, that, you know, your name may, may be in the media, um, all of these types of considerations that we don't, you know, we don't want to walk down that road. So, Again, from my perspective, and I know there's varying positions on this, uh, it's much better to be open and honest um, so that there, there's no potential for lawsuits down the road. Perfect. Anything else coming up, you think, with cannabis or stigmatized properties that we should know about, Michael? Any new issues that you've seen or have been going through the courts that are maybe the realtor should be aware of and, and be cognizant of? Yeah, nothing with uh, stigma. I mean, the most recent case to consider stigma here in, in British Columbia uh, was last year, and that was in, in regards to the, the, the gang activity. Um, but it really has sort of cleared the air on, on, on stigmatized properties and the importance of actually uh, doing your due diligence, being very careful around this area that the case I mentioned in British Columbia went all the way to the Court of Appeal was very expensive for all parties. Um, and, you know, the real estate professionals involved uh, were in the media. Their name were in the media. It's just so I think my big takeaway for stigma is, you know, caution when you're dealing with uh, this kind of an issue um, and uh, and, you know, encouraging uh, open communication. Uh, and again, I know there are different perspectives on it, but that that one is mine. Um, one of the other areas that I'm, I'm not sure is of interest uh, to to your members is, is just in regards to condominium management and how condo boards, you know, may may deal with that. I'm not sure if that's an issue, but that is one that. Oh, I think it is. Yeah, it's huge. Please. Yeah. So in British Columbia, we have this as an issue where uh, and it really started before legalization. There was a bit of a panic uh, amongst uh, we call it strata boards here or condominium boards that that were panicking about oh, what are we going to do here and how do we uh, how do we control the use of uh, cannabis on our on our property? And so the basic principles of, are this uh, a strata corporation or condominium uh, board is able to amend their bylaws uh, as long as they follow the proper procedures for voting. Uh, and they are able to restrict the growing of cannabis in their strata property. And they are able to restrict the smoking of cannabis in their uh, in their condominium property. And so as long as they go through the proper procedures, they can put whatever uh, restrictions that they would like there. Now, the two important things to note on that are one is that the, the condos, condo board's ability to manage is, is, is the ability to manage the property itself. So, for instance, you can say that you can't grow or you can't smoke because that touches the property. Whereas you could not, for instance, put in a, a straight across ban of use of cannabis in the strata property because you could, you know, have an edible and watch TV and that doesn't touch the property at all. And so it's just important stratas have this power to regulate, but that power to regulate is really tied to the property itself. Yeah, because so if you're growing plants, it could actually give off a smell that could be touching the property or bothering other people and stuff like that. Yeah, or the moisture. Um, it, doesn't it doesn't have to be sm uh, smoking at all. It could be just the moisture in there saying, hey, 
that moisture that you're generating in that house in that little unit is causing problems with the rest of the building. Also, it could be said having 700 plants in there too, <laughs> uh, cannabis too. Yes. So the little old lady with all the plants, you got to say, you know, you got to cut back, sweetheart. It's just not. Uh, it's just too many. Well, and, and that that that's it makes a good point, which is the fact that this doesn't just relate to cannabis. The strata or condo boards can can pass bylaws to govern all sorts of aspects of use of property, and they do. You know, size of dogs or um, you know. Uh, different things like that. And so it's no different with cannabis. The, the strata board is able to uh, effectively restrict the growing and smoking, but they can't restrict general use if it doesn't touch the property. Um, the other thing to note is that first for condominium boards that they also uh, have to be aware of this uh, medicinal use because uh, they may, you know, even if you have a bylaw, uh, a strata board still or a condominium board still has the obligation to accommodate disability in the exact same way that we spoke about in, in terms of uh, residential rental. Um, one of the interesting things I might just touch on, I'm not sure if you've seen this before, but is one of the, one of the sort of uh, tougher situations is where you might have competing claims. So imagine you have a, a tenant or a, a strata owner who requires uh, cannabis for medicinal purpose. Um, maybe they are a cancer patient and they need it so that they can eat um, to, to control nausea. And then right next door, you have another cancer patient, but they have lung cancer and they have COPD. So they absolutely cannot be around drifting smoke. And so you now have two competing legitimate uh Claims, And so that's a, another one of these very difficult situations where uh, both accommodations must be pursued in good faith, but you're very, uh, you're very um, highly recommended to seek some, some, some advice and some uh, assistance at that point, whether that's your managing broker or whether you have a, a lawyer that your brokerage deals with. Those are very uh, strange situations, but they're coming up more and more and more. And then again, it's, it's like you said before, there's no perfect um, there's no perfect residence for, uh, or accommodations, I should say, for your whatever use you want to have in there. So you have to take that into consideration. Exactly. I mean, I've, I've worked in, in scenarios where uh, tenants have had to be moved to other parts of the building. Um, and they didn't want to do that, but that had to be part of their accommodation because, it, you know, they had another competing claim that they couldn't move for for whatever reason. So it, this really just has to be pursued in, in good faith by both parties. I recognize it not always uh, is, unfortunately, but as the professionals in the uh, in the mix, we have to always pursue our, our you know, our um, activities in, in good faith there. And and the accommodation has to be pursued uh, with both. Yeah, and then working with the with the condo board or uh, strata board and or the property manager and coming up with a solution. It's if anybody just starts throwing out letters, it's going to get bad very quickly all the way around. Um, you know, just setting up a meeting and saying, okay, how can we fix this is probably the best way. Yeah. Um, and for the for a selling realtor um, that's representing the property and the and the and the sellers, uh, a good conversation about this needs to happen. Um, otherwise you're going to be in, in deep, deep trouble real quick. So again, like you said, due diligence. Yeah. And I mean, it's the biggest thing, it's a good practice, uh, you know, number of really good practice points there. I mean, one, anytime you're dealing with cannabis, uh, it's, it's new, 
our, our legalization is only a few years old. So extra caution whenever you're dealing with any new legal rule, um, you know, doing your due diligence. Absolutely. When you're in the rental or, or the strata um, uh, scenario, just being aware of uh, medicinal cannabis duty to accommodate uh, need for proof from the individual trying to claim uh, their need for accommodation. Uh, and then just as you mentioned, conversations are much better than letters sometimes. Obviously, you have to pay attention to the situation. But many of the, the competing claims that I've referenced that I've uh, been involved with uh, never escalated to a legal forum. They never le- escalated to a court or a tribunal. And that's what you want. You want to be able to negotiate between the, the parties to find an accommodation that works for all parties because, um, yeah, be ending up in, in the business end of a, of, a, of a human rights claim is not something that we want to be doing. Yeah, that's that's going down a, do- a long, dark path, an expensive path for sure. One thing that we're bringing hopefully uh, this year into Alberta with the Amendment Act of 2014, the Condominium, Condominium Amendment Act, we're gonna, looks like we're going to get arbitration uh, for the uh, owners and property managers and boards and stuff like that. Uh, right now, the, the only remedy is going to court. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll have that uh, arbitration in place for condominiums mm-hmm. where you don't, uh, you may only have to spend 500 bucks, put your complaint in, go before an arbitrator, and then the arbitrator has the court authority to decide what's what's the best way mm-hmm. without spending thousands of thousands of dollars. So that's something that's coming our way, hopefully, very quickly in Alberta. I know that the COVID is slowing stuff down, but the regulator is working on it. So mm-hmm. we've, uh, we've walked that road in British Columbia as well with the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which was given uh, jurisdiction a few years ago, and I was one of the initial appointees uh, to sit on that tribunal. And so it was it was great for those involved with the strata world uh, or condominium world because going to court is a is a big barrier. Um, and so there were a lot of small disputes that never got adequately resolved. Uh, on the other side, it's opened up a forum for uh, easier complaint in in this context, which uh, which can be a good or a bad thing depending on your your perspective. Yeah, well, it you know. If, if you put a dollar value on it and say, well, you know, is it worth the $500 to complain about this or is it not? So it kind of gets rid of some of the frivolous complaints, or at least you hope it does. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I have is I know that condo or cannabis legislation, not the condo, the cannabis legislation is new. It's only four years old. Do you foresee any court challenges or anything like that coming up that could um, radically affect it at all? I know I'm. Mm-hmm. you're looking... That's a tough question, but I know, you know, as things go to court and somebody takes it to court, the the legislation tends to change or can be modified. Yeah, I mean, I think it just in the in the general realm of cannabis, there's so many uh, areas that the law touches on, and there there is there has actually been changes to certain aspects of the law uh, in in regards to other aspects of it. Say, um, you know, the the uh, the growing or distribution, and there's been some changes along that in, in some areas. So I do see uh, I do see change occurring in the realm of cannabis and real estate. However, what I'm really looking for is more case law, sort of, as you say, I want to see more. um, It's the fuzzy lines of the legislation that we like to get clear. And those often happen because somebody bumps up against them, and then it goes to court. And then we have a clear sort of delineation of the court's position. That's what I'm really looking forward to. And that's, it's actually a really good point to make. That's one of the reasons we have this extra caution, because anytime you have a new law, there's not going to be a lot of case law to help you interpret it. So uh, as I always say to the people taking my courses, uh, my goal is to make you not 
those first people who end up in front of the court because you never really know what's going to happen in that case. So what I'm looking forward to is, is more of those edges being defined and they'll be defined through residential tenancy arbitration. They'll be defined through our regular court system um, and through discipline cases as well with the regulator. So for real estate professionals in Alberta, you really don't want to be uh, the purveyor of case law um, and, and being proud of the fact that, oh, I helped define this law or this legislation. We would let, rather have that done by other people is what you're saying. Yes, generally you would. I mean, I'll give a, a quick example. In British Columbia, there was a case that occurred in the interior of our province where a, a former grow up was sold. Um, there was very limited disclosures. This individual, the, the real estate professional involved, was uh, was obviously disciplined, was also sued for negligence. Uh, it just it was not a, a good experience for this individual, I can imagine. So we, we, we want to prevent ever, anybody else, uh, uh, at least those listening to our podcast and, and taking our education from being those, those people. So, so those people out there are going to be dealing with this and all realtors really will be dealing all aspects of, of, of residential real estate. Make sure you do your deal, due diligence. Make sure you do a lot of digging. Be a Sherlock Holmes. Find out as much as you can about the property because if the, you stand up in front of a judge and says, the judge says, what did you do to find out about this? And you give them one answer. It's probably not going to be good enough. So just think of yourself in front of that judge and uh, making sure you do diligence. Anything else you got for us, Michael? Absolutely. Well, you know, I think that really kind of covers uh, the main points. I mean, in, in under residential sales, we really want to be aware of our, our defects, our patent, our latent, uh, our stigma. Uh, so we want to want to be have a high appreciation of that. And in the rental property management side, we want to know about our abilities to restrict growing and smoking through our agreements, and then also dealing with complaints and quiet enjoyment. And then finally, uh, in residential tenancy, our human rights. And then similarly with strata, we just want to be aware of the ability for strata corporations uh, to uh, to restrict through their bylaws. We also have the same issues of quiet enjoyment and the same issues of human rights. And I think that's a pretty good uh, summary of, of some of the major areas that we should be aware of. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. It's been very informative and maybe we'll have to get you back in about a year and see what's changed. Great. Thank you very much, Bill. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Michael and Bill. And thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you the next time we are in your area.